The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. This is a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast recorded live at Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing Policy, May 26th, 2021. Hello, this is Tim Foster. I'm with Capital Weekly, and uh, I want to thank you all for joining us. This is our final panel of the day, uh, panel three on the topic of the housing costs. Uh, we're all seeing amazingly high housing costs. Is this a bubble? Is this the new normal? What's driving this? And I'm very excited uh, about the panelists and our moderator, who I think are the perfect people to address this question. And before we jump into the panel, I do want to thank our sponsors. Uh, Capital Weekly is published by a 501c3 nonprofit called Open California, and we rely on our underwriters to be able to do events like this. I'm so happy to make this available to everyone at no cost. Uh, And so we have been very lucky to have the support of our underwriters like the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, WISPA, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, California Building Industry Association, Capital Advocacy, Perry Communications, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and the California Professional Firefighters. And uh, again, without them, I don't know how we would do events like this. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to our moderator, Manuela Tobias. She is the new housing reporter at Cal Matters. And I just learned this morning from uh, Liam Dillon that she is going to be the new co-host of their exceptional housing podcast, Gimme Shelter. And so uh, I think that'll be starting back up very soon. I have to say that the old Yumi Shelter sort of owned this this territory. It was essential listening for anyone interested in housing policy, and I'm sure that the new episodes will be equally excellent. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to Manuela. Oh, um, so yeah, I'm really excited to get to moderate this panel. Um, we got a really stellar lineup here, so thank you all for um agreeing to to talk about this issue. Um, so we're joined by Assemblymember Buffy Wicks from the East Bay, Jason Elliott, a senior counselor to Governor Gavin Newsom, Adam Fowler, a director of research at Beacon Economics, and Jennifer Sveck, a legislative advocate for the California Association of Realtors. Um, yeah, really, really excited to be joined by all of you. So um, we can just dive right in. Um, we uh, are seeing crazy home prices. Uh, the median home price in the Bay Area jumped to an all-time high of 1.3 million in April, and the statewide um, home price broke 800,000 last month. Um, but we're here to talk about the problem and uh, solutions. So I prepared a number of questions for all of you, and welcome the audience to also chime in with questions um, for the end. Um, but to kick us off, I would love to uh, go around and by way of introduction, uh, have all of you um, tell us a little bit about uh, how how you uh, fit into this conversation and define uh, in two to three minutes how we got here and uh, what the state can do to slow down um, the rapidly rising cost of homes. Um, pretty pretty easy. Um, easy task. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, whoever wants to uh, get us started and just, uh, yeah, start talking about this. I'm happy to, to dive in first. Uh, my name is Buffy. I'm an assembly member, also a mom of two cute little girls, um, which is my most important job. But I also like being an assembly member and I represent uh, the East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond area. Um, and, uh, you know, we've seen huge increases in cost here in the East Bay um, uh, pretty dramatically in the last you know year. And I think we didn't really know what COVID would bring in terms of the cost of housing, but it is the market is just insane right now. You know, and just kind of taking a step back, you know, my sort of philosophy on this is you asked sort of how did we get here? I think that one of the main underlying factors is that we haven't built enough homes to accommodate all the people that are coming into our region. You know, we have 
hot job markets, which is great, but we don't have the housing to accommodate the folks that are here. Um, you know, we have a lot of wealth in the tech sector, for instance, in the Bay Area, and those folks are now competing with our teachers and our nurses for housing stock. Um, and it's good to have high paying jobs in your region. We want that, but we need the accompanying housing stock to, to accomplish that. I think we're 3.5 million homes shy, I think, of where we need to be. Um, and that, I think there's a number of reasons for that, that we can talk through. And I think we have some ideas of what, what solutions those are, but I think increasing production is, is going to be a big piece of um, how we do this. I'm also a believer that we need to protect our tenants. And I think we need to do an all of the above strategy. And I've worked on bills like 1482 with David Chu, with the governor's office and others to ensure that we're not, um, you know, we're preventing this sort of like major gouging that we had seen before. Um, but I do think a big piece of this is production. A big piece of this is is um, is protecting our tenants. And then also things like taking our blighted and, um, you know, vacant homes and converting those to affordable housing, especially when you look at very affordable housing, we are at a very severe shortage of, of that housing. Um, so that I think is going to be critical, but I think it's building housing at all income levels, you know, for low income, very low income, but also for our, what we call our missing middle um, and ensuring that we do that. So I think generally speaking, that's my general philosophy is we need to do a sort of an all of the above strategy. We have suffered from um, really not building enough housing. Um, we have to protect our tenants um, and we have to preserve, um, you know, some of these um, properties to ensure that those get converted to affordable housing. So those are kind of some of the basics in terms of my own personal philosophy and just sort of my space in this. I've, I've been an elected down on my third year and I've done work um, both in, you know, sort of housing preservation, housing production and, and, um, and, and, and tenant rights work as well in the assembly. Well, I'll go ahead and jump in next. Uh, my name is Jennifer and I represent the California Association of Realtors. I've been with the organization about 20 years. Um, some would say I, I grew up in the organization um, the daughter of a developer and the uh, daughter of a realtor. So it worked out really well for me. Um, I got to grow up seeing uh, what, how housing was important to individuals. And uh, over my time with the California Association of Realtors, it's been extraordinarily clear that supply is a problem. Um, I specialize in trying to create more ownership housing opportunities and, and the assembly member is absolutely correct. We need more housing from the bottom to the top, 150%. That is an absolutely factual statement. The question is, how do we get there? And I think that's where the rubber meets the road. And we all seem to, to not necessarily agree in the policy arena as to how we get the supply that we need. We know that we've had diminishing uh, permit pulls uh, over the last 10 years. Um, uh, the COVID obviously did not help us with increasing the number of housing units built last year. We also know that affordable housing is vitally important, but the only way that we're going to be able to develop enough housing from, from low income to to moderate income is to, to blend those mixed income uh, units together. Um, that's the best way that we can do it because there's no way that we're gonna be able to subsidize our way out of the problem that we have created. Um, research that sh has shown that since the 1970s, we failed to build enough housing to meet supply. And now we're really getting to a tipping point when statewide median housing prices uh, peaked over $800,000 this last month. Um, we don't really see that necessarily falling and, and not necessarily a bubble because at this point between inflation falling interest rates and income growth that we've seen in the state of California it's clear that we sort of have a stable market there may be a softening but but we really don't see the kind of thing that we saw back in 2008 where we saw a massive price drop which a lot of people allowed a lot of people to step into the housing market we're not really seeing that opportunity yet it, it may come uh, in the future but um, those that weathered through through COVID um, have done so pretty responsibly. And, and we don't expect to see the, the same foreclosure crisis we'd seen before. Um, we're greatly appreciative of being a part of the conversation. Uh, Some member Wicks has been a leader in this issue as have a lot of her colleagues from San Francisco and the Bay Area, um, LA. They, they have um, sort of a different land use strategy down there. And so that's, I think, where we, we run into some of our differences of opinion in the legislature as we're trying to lobby to increase supply. Um, and, you know, we hope to find those solutions that work statewide, but at the same time, tailor them so that uh, local communities still have a say, a say in the design uh, and look and feel of their communities. I'm happy to jump in next. Uh, I'm Adam Fowler. I'm director of research at Beacon Economics. Uh, we're an independent consulting firm that does a lot of economic development and housing work in the state and across the Western United States. Um, it's in California, it's a problem of our own doing in a lot of ways. Um, so I always joke that at 40, I'm an elder millennial and I used to play the Oregon Trail. And when we would go west, 
Um, I used to joke with colleagues at work that we didn't get to the West and find uh, the rigid general plans, the rigid land use, the rigid uh, regulatory infrastructure we have here in California. And so as we talk today about kind of unpacking the drivers um, that are responsible for um, some of the challenges around uh, affordability and price, I think in California, um, we've got a very specific set of self-imposed um, challenges. The exciting thing is because they're self-imposed, we also can um, solve for them. And so when we talk about um, price increases around lumber, PVC pipe, copper, uh, part of the kind of world of supply challenges that are driving price fluctuation today, we can't solve market challenges very easily. What we can solve is where we allow housing to be built, what kind of housing, what kind of options are available. And so that gives me hope that um, a lot of our challenges in the state um, are uh, somewhat um, historical uh, you know, solutions at a time that isn't today. And we uh, have control over solving for a, a large number of these in the ways we can't control global trade or other kind of uh, challenges that are more market driven than regulatory driven. So great, great to be here and be a part of the conversation. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up the intro section before I, I start. I, I think I'd be remiss. We'd be remiss if we didn't um, just take a moment to acknowledge what's going on in San Jose uh, today. And the governor's on his way. Sorry, I'm Jason Elliott. I work for the governor. I'm senior counselor to the governor. Um, and the governor's on his way or actually in San Jose already. And um, the tragedy that's unfolding there. And while we have a, a conversation around housing policy, which is critical, uh, just to keep in mind that there, um, we need to do so much more on gun violence in this country. And it's just... Um, the access to firearms and the fear of going to work uh, is unacceptable in California. And so just holding, holding those families and those victims in our hearts uh, today, because I think it's important just to take a moment to, to mark that. Um, to the question around housing and what can be done, you know, I, I look at in the, in the position that I sit, I have a, I have a luxury of hearing lots of really good ideas from lots of really smart people who are really passionate about this issue. And, um, you know, I think trying to sort of simplify and say, well, what, what are we really dealing with here? As Buffy's, as Ms. Wick said, decades of bad decision-making, decades of misaligned incentives, uh, decades of kicking the can down the road have provided us with this challenge and opportunity in 2021 that we're now trying to solve. Fundamentally, I believe, governor believes, the, the, the problem is that we have the wrong um, reflex around housing in this state. We start with no. No, we shouldn't build there. No, we shouldn't build 200 units there. No, that's not where affordable housing goes. When we should start with, yeah, let's let's see if we can get there. And then there will always be reasons that housing is not appropriate in a particular location. It's it's gentr it's 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 adding gent unacceptable gentrification pressure. Uh, it is built on a toxic site. Uh, it's not good access to transit. There are reasons that housing should not always be built in every single case. You know, we're not Texas. We're California. We do have land use law. Uh, but I think if we if we can just with every little incremental bill we sign and every enforcement action we take uh, and every HCD accountability unit that we propose, which I'd love to talk about, it's really just a question of how do we turn, just turn it over, just turn that assumption over. Let's start with yes, unless there's a reason to not build, which we have to remain open minded to the fact that sometimes there are good reasons not to build particular housing or at a particular scale. But if we just start with yes, if we just change the default. Look, we're several million units short, no matter which study you want to look at or you want to believe. Um, at half a million a door, which I don't know anybody's producing units at half a million a door, but at half a million a door, it's over a trillion dollars in direct subsidy. So it's not really realistic to expect, and I think Jennifer was saying this perhaps, um, it's not realistic to assume that we're going to subsidize our way out of this, which means we really need the private sector to do what it does, which is to build housing. Um, there will always be a role for government to subsidize affordable, to build homeless housing. That's, there will always be a role for that. But those numbers are going to be, while important, relatively small. So the question is, how do we turn the default and say yes to housing, unless there are good reasons and having an honest conversation about perhaps sometimes why the answer should be no. And I think that's fundamentally where we need to head. And so I'll, I'll stop there. But you know, a lot of what I'm going to want to talk about and, and share with the, with the participants today is really how the totality of what the governor is either proposing or supporting really is all around changing, changing that default premise to, to yes on housing. 
Thank you. That was great. Um, So Jennifer made a great point, which was that the real issue is where the rubber hits the road, which is housing policy. Um, And we've seen that it is incredibly hard to pass legislation on this issue year after year. Uh, Assemblymember Wicks, you experienced this firsthand last year with SB 1120. Um, Can you talk to why it's so hard um, to get anything passed? And what what do you see happening this year? I ask myself this question all the time. You know, and I, I do a number of housing production bills and got a couple done last year that thankfully the governor signed. Thank you, Jason. Uh, and thank the governor for that. Um, but, you know, like 1120 is, a, I think, a, a, an example, right? And that, that sort of faced some procedural issues that I think were unanticipated. It ended up passing in both bodies, but didn't get done in time. Um, it sort of turned into a pumpkin at the, the late hour there. Um, but, you know, I, I think you have a lot of different competing interest groups. Um, I think you have, you know, very engaged homeowner association groups who want to keep the community the way it is, don't want to see um, development. And, you know, there's, I understand that the change is sort of scary for people. And what is this going to mean? And what is our community going to look like? And is there going to be increased traffic? And is there going to be increased crime? And is there going to be, you know, there's sort of these questions that loom through some of this stuff, right? Um, you know, the homeowners associations, they call up their assembly members and say, hey, I'm, I, I, I don't want the SB 50 or pick, pick a bill, right. Um, that they're, they're concerned about. I think you have a lot of different stakeholders if you're talking about tenants bills, you know, and I, you know, I'm happy to have Jennifer on the panel. I work very closely with the realtors on some bills. I also work against the realtors on other bills. Right. Um, and you did, I think the, the sort of housing, debate is not a Democrat versus Republican debate. It is, has nothing to do with party. It has everything to do with um, multiple different types of stakeholders. You have the apartment association, the realtors, the tenants rights organizations, the homeownership groups, the building trades, you know, um, the, the, the nonprofit affordable housing developers, CBIA as an interest group. You know, there's a lot of different interest groups involved in this. Um, you have local municipalities, you know, um, local cities who have very specific ideas on what zoning means for them, right? Is it is it the state's role to do zoning reform? Some people think it is. Some people think it isn't. Right. There's just a lot of different sort of, I think, pieces to that within the progressive. Some of my progressive colleagues feel very uncomfortable siding with the developers, you know. Um, And so there's a lot of different. I think this cuts a lot of different ways. Um, And so I think, you know, a, a big part of just how I try to approach these bills is, you know, I sort of when I look at at any bill as a legislator, I think of myself as like the precinct captain of that of the legislature on that bill and how am I going to get to 41 votes and how am I going to sit Once down an organizer, and always an organizer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, vote. exactly. Right. Like, you know, I'm just going to like precinct captain the, the legislature and my colleagues and, and get to 41, which involves a lot of conversations. Especially and when Buffy is canvassing you, she will call you every single day. I can attest to that. It's when she true. I, I, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to ask. Um, but you know, it's, it's having those conversations with colleagues, figuring out how we can get to 41 figuring out, you know, some members, you know, they want to be with you. They need something to change. How do you make those amendments to make it a little bit better, but still fundamentally sticking to the core value of the bill, which in for me, often it's housing production bills that I've done quite a few of. I now, sadly, am not really carrying any housing bills because I took it took a pound of flesh off there with the appropriations process. Um, uh, although I do have a two-year bill, but you know, it's working with a lot of different stakeholders trying to get to yes. You know, I've, as I've mentioned, you know, like CBIA, you know, they've been, I've, I've gotten them from opposed to neutral. You know, I've gotten the realtors from opposed to neutral. I've gotten, you know, working with different stakeholders to try to make this, this work. Um, but you know, the legislators are, you know, we all have our own unique, desires and interests and calculations as we make these decisions. And so ensuring that, you know, I'm working with them in the most collaborative way possible um, to get the bills over the finish line, I think is, is a big piece of it. Jason, I have a, um, something else that's, that's different this time um, is that the governor is very likely facing a recall election. How does that influence um, how, how the governor is seeing housing um, this time around? Sure. It's a good question. I mean, I think in the context of the what the governor's facing, 
around the recall, our strategy is just to continue to do the right thing as we emerge from this pandemic. And I know that sounds like a throwaway answer, but if you take a look at the budget that we just proposed to the legislature last week, was it last week? My God, last week, two weeks ago, um, we're talking about stimulus funds to low-income Californians, working Californians, undo- undocumented Californians. Uh, we're talking about significant investments into education. We're talking about addressing climate change and drought. And the f- sort of fifth pillar, really, if you will, uh, is housing and homelessness. And housing and homelessness, putting those at the top of our agenda in the governor's office, is not a response to the recall. It's a response to what the state needs. And you know, I, I say, okay, you roll your eyes. But I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of point back to the 2020 state of the state speech that the governor delivered before coronavirus was a thing and before a recall was a glimmer in anyone's eye. And the entire speech was dedicated to housing and homelessness. So the governor has been committed to this issue since I worked for him as mayor of San Francisco. Uh, and, and I think in the, the context of the recall is that we're not operating in the context of the recall when it comes to housing and homelessness. We're going to continue to do the things that California needs us to do. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to, I don't want to filibuster with a budget presentation to, to Ms. Wicks and her colleagues here, but um, there's $12 billion for, for homelessness, predominantly housing within that, within that uh, proposal, an additional $1.75 billion for a whole host of other affordable housing, not necessarily homeless, but affordable housing related uh, new investments. And that's on top of several billion more in, sort of ongoing expenditures. So the significant amount of money that's being proposed by the governor here, uh, I think is the response to the question, not what are we doing now because of the recall, but what's necessary for us to do to to try to dig California uh, out of this multi-decade hole. And then I'll just, because I really want to talk about this and I don't have to do it now necessarily, but um, this housing accountability unit that the governor proposed back in January, which we continue to propose to the legislature now, is not a money thing so much. I, I think it's we're proposing only, uh, well, only several million dollars in staff, but against $12 billion in housing subsidies, several million in staff looks small. Uh, but it's a very important policy proposal to the governor. Um, and and it, Manuel, I don't want to derail the agenda. And, and I know Jennifer and Adam probably want to um, get in on this question as well. But I, I really do want to just talk about the need to, to move forward with local um, technical assistance and then local accountability where that technical assistance doesn't yield results. At the end of the day, 58 counties and 480 cities are the authorities on land use in this state, not us, with the exception of state land, which is important but limited. Those local government partners are at the end of the day, when we talk about changing, that flipping that default from no to yes, that's who we really need to convince. That's who we really need to work with. That's who we really need to partner with. At the end of the day, those are the planning commissions, the building departments and the city councils uh, where those decisions are being made. So um, I-, I believe, the governor believes that Ms. Wicks and like-minded colleagues in the legislature over the last five or so years have passed with uh, uh, the, the blood, sweat and tears of a number of people who are on this, because I was just looking through the participant list, with the blood, sweat and tears of a number of people who are listening in on this call. You've passed tremendous legislation, streamlining things, adding density things, enabling things, just this, this, this tremendous um, le- basket of legislation since really since 2017. The question that I would pose is, um, you've planted those trees, are they bearing fruit? Are we harvesting the results of those efforts? You know, too often, we all think that getting a bill across the desk, getting a bill to the governor, getting it signed is sort of the finish line, but it really isn't. And especially for us and the executive branch, we have to execute. The legislature makes the policy and then we're responsible for administering it. And if we don't do our job, if we don't, cre- if we don't create new units with those laws that Ms. Wicks and her colleagues have passed, then we've only run, um, you know, we only run halfway around the track and we need to finish that lap. So the idea behind the housing accountability unit is to take a look at all of the laws that have been passed, not only in the last few years, but some laws that go back much further and say, there is a tremendous amount of streamlining. There is a tremendous amount of exemption. There is a tremendous amount of incentive that exists in state law. Why is it not being utilized to a greater extent um, than it presently is? Just one example, um, and I know some people love this and some people hate it, but SB 743, which creates the VMT laws in the state, establishes um, what we sort of colloquially call green zones, which are infill infill designated areas, and they exist in all 58 counties all over the state. There are tremendous streamlinings that attach to housing built in VMT green zones. There are potentially 10 million units available, and I'm not suggesting that 743 is going to get us 10 million units. That's not the point I'm making. 
but there are potentially up to 10 million units that are in existing green zones with existing streamlining. It's our responsibility in the executive branch to try to have as many of those as possible sprout out of the ground, right? And so that's really where the housing accountability unit comes in, is taking a look at those planning commissions, taking a look at those cities, helping them get into compliance with the various laws that exist on the books already, uh, and, and trying to, uh, as I said, have more of those laws sprout um, sprout actual units. And so that's that's really what the housing accountability is about, taking all this work that's been done before us, honoring it, and implementing it. Along those same lines, uh, Jason, just a follow-up. Um, I know that there's a deadline coming up on July 1st around um, HCD's uh, development of those the pro-housing designation. Um, I'm curious, uh, there's there's a lot riding on that and in terms of also um, carrots to, to those who do meet those um, that designation. Can you uh, give us a sense of what is deemed pro-housing and how the state is going to reward those jurisdictions? I'm going to give you such a frustrating answer, Manuel, and you're going to hate it and you're going to be so mad at me for this. Uh, but we're still working to finalize some of those details and I'm not, we're not quite ready to share uh, publicly around that. But just for the mm-hmm. sake of the folks that are listening to this panel, um, what Manuela is uh, referring to is something that we worked with the legislature on in 2019 uh, to create what had never been in creation before, which is a pro-housing designation for jurisdictions that do the right thing on housing law that take proactive steps to repeal some exclusionary zoning or change parking minimums or, or a whole bunch of other options that are available to local governments, uh, because we want to reward with incentive in, uh, bonus points for, for competitive housing grants and things, for example, cities that take the politically difficult, sometimes politically difficult choice to repeal that down zoning, right? To add density, to do more on housing and to be pro housing. You know, I, I um, so that's, that's what, is being referred to and those uh, rules will be coming out uh, shortly, but unfortunately nothing I'm able to share at this point. I I will just mention that I'm watching with glee, giddiness, uh, what President Biden is doing around housing. And he's proposed something that's roughly similar to what we're doing on pro-housing. Now he set up a $5 billion national incentive pot for cities uh, and counties around the country that repeal these exclusionary policies and, and change some of these things. He doesn't call it pro-housing, which is fine, but it's the, the I think that I don't want to put words in the president's mouth. I wouldn't deign to do that, but the, we're heading down the same path here, which is that at the end of the day, the president of the United States, the governor of California, Uh, don't control those local land use decisions local governments do. And so how do we set up an incentive structure, whether it's with the president's incentive structure, whether it's with our pro-housing rules or accountability unit, how do we set up an incentive structure where those local governments are saying yes more often uh, in the future than they are now? Speaking about um, housing legislation, want to get um, kind of a feeler for some of the, the big um, bills in the legislature right now. I'd love to do a little lightning round. I know we don't have any of these little paddles to um, uh, yeah, get us started, but uh, the, some, some of the, the big ones um, that I'm thinking about, for example, SB9, um, Senate Leader Tony Atkins, uh, which would allow homeowners to um, build a duplex on single family lots or split them without requiring a hearing or approval from local government, which Jason is exactly one of the, the um, these ideas you're alluding to. Um, can um, I'd love to go around and, and see what you all think about um, this, this bill and a couple others. Um, if, if you want to get started on that. I'll yield to others. I've talked too much already. No, we want, we want to hear your, your thoughts on this. I mean, I think okay, so you do want me to probably, probably <laughs> more economist or pro-liberalizing land use, so support. Uh, so, I mean, I'll just, uh, sorry, Jennifer, I'll just, you know, I'll say that as a, as a matter of um, religion and, and law, I don't um, put the governor on record uh, on bills uh, before they reach his desk. And so I'm just going to frustrate you with that answer. But, you know, I will say that there are a number of pieces in the housing package, including SB7, if I'm getting the number right, uh, which the governor was privileged to sign last week with Ms. Atkins, uh, which extends AB900. So the governor is certainly very open-minded uh, to doing more, to signing aggressive housing bills that will c- increase production. In addition, I'm a broken record, let's make sure we're implementing what's already in law, right? Not just necessarily adding which is important, adding new laws, but also making sure that all of the SB9s and all the SB7s that have gone before are actually yielding, because otherwise a governor's signature doesn't build units. So just really always maintaining that dual track of adding new law, but also implementing what, what is already on the books. Jennifer, would, like, would you like to weigh in? Sure. So the realtors actually have a complicated position this year. 
uh, we support uh, ministerial approvals of lot splits. However, we see uh, an interest in protecting from gentrification at this point. Uh, there was a very real concern that was brought forward by the LA delegation of, of electeds at the end of last session, um, which our members spent a lot of time looking at talking to people within their community and they came back with a recommendation for our organization um, that we were to support the measure provided that we limit the lot split opportunity to owner occupants. So those individuals that agree to owner occupy the unit for three years. Uh, we feel that owner occupants have the hardest time splitting lots. Uh, professional developers, they're more able to navigate the system far more easily than a homeowner who doesn't really understand what's going on. And the idea is to create more equity and wealth for uh, some of our underserved communities. Um, by doing that, you allow them to make a choice that they can have the opportunity to split the lot and either sell the lot uh, to pay off bills, pay off debt, or um, in order to keep their family close, they can uh, build a new construction unit far more easily than they can build ADUs generally because the financing on the federal side is still a bit complicated and you can't count the rental income or you can't count the income of someone who's not on the title. And so creating that lot split opportunity for owners is vitally important. Uh, and while we absolutely uh, support the, the the sentiment of SB9, um, we're not in full support at this particular stage, but we're hopeful that that by the end of the process, we'll be able to get back there. Um, just on the, the duplex, obviously, uh, I spoke out in favor of SB 1120 last year. You may have seen with my four-week-old in my arms, which ended up making it sort of national news, but um, in probably the worst floor speech I've ever given, but I guess that's how it goes. Uh, so I'm a big supporter of that. I think d the ability to do duplexes and single-family zoned um, areas is the one of the easiest ways that we can actually densify in a way that I think for those that are concerned about the neighborhood character would still maintain said neighborhood character. Um, I'm a big supporter in duplexes, tries, quads, um, ADUs, anything that allows us to create the density, I think is really important. Um, you know, and I know we're going to talk about sort of the home ownership question or that that's been raised. I think people having the ability to have home ownership in this country is how you build wealth, you know? And right now there are too many people, especially black and brown folks who don't have that on-ramp, um, you know, and we need to ensure that we're, we have public policies that, that create that. And I think having this type of density is one path that would, would enable more home ownership. Um, I also think it's important. I also want to note, it's important we have diversity at the table in all these conversations on this panel, for instance, right? You know, we need more diversity in this conversation. We need people with different life experiences, with different ethnic diversity, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, both at the policymaking table and also then in within home ownership. Um, so I support um, these types of bills that, and I haven't read this bill specifically yet. It hasn't come to the assembly yet, but um, I, I assume I'll be supportive. Um, and I haven't read all the Senate bills yet because I've been dealing with, you know, thousands of bills over in the assembly side. Um, um, but these types of things, this type of, of densifying is something certainly that I've been on record supporting in the past. Definitely. Um, might pivot uh, to, to another um, question that I, that I had. Um, last November, the state auditor issued a pretty blistering report on the state's uncoordinated housing programs. Uh, the report said California failed to build enough affordable homes because of, um, in part because of uh, it lacks an effective approach uh, to plan and finance the uh, development of affordable housing. Uh, what do you all think about this disjointed system and why, if California is so committed to building more housing, does it stand in its own way? Um, Jason, if you want to get, get us started with that. Sure. Um, so I, I, that, you know, that report, I think, made some important points. Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that the reason that we have an affordability crisis in California is because we have um, four or five different constitutional officers working on housing. Um, it's certainly a contributing factor. Uh, the assembly sent the governor a bill, uh, AB 434, and I, if I've missed that number, excuse me, I'm actually uh, struggle with the numbers, but at AB 434 by Mr. Grayson, um, which set us on a path uh, to starting to streamline some of those um, disparate uh, uh, application uh, processes. We were eager to sign that bill. The governor did. We immediately started implementing towards that bill. We made budget proposals to make sure that we had the resources at HCD we needed to start that. And at 434 for the uninitiated uh, starts to move us towards what I love this name. It's not the official name, a super NOFA. 
right? Notice of funding abil- availability. We have all these different NOFAs all over the government. And if you're a developer, you have to chase different timelines with different requirements. Let's create just one super NOFA. Um, and that's that's where 434 starts to walk us. It's by no means the last step in this process, but it's an important first step. So we're working on implementing that right now. Uh, and that should bear fruit. And also, by the way, it'll show us where we're still deficient and where we'll need to do further legislative reforms. A couple other things. So I, I guess it's a long way of saying that to some, to a great extent, I agree with the premise of, of the question and the criticism. And then the question is, how do you solve towards it? And in addition to 434, uh, we're, we're working on um, some common applications shared with, you know, here comes the acronyms TCAC, SIDLAC, and CalHFA, and trying to bring some um, some some unity to, to how developers interact with those various systems. And final point I'll make on this, um, we have a complicated housing finance system, to say the least. Uh, and one of the places where things get gummed up is in the SIDLAC, in the, in the bond allocation backlog, just waiting. They have an HCD award, and then they just wait a year, two years, three years for that bond allocation. The, the the backlog built up to $3 billion. That's where we're at right now. So there's $3 billion worth of bond demand that's just sitting there with HCD awards, housing that's by definition, six months shovel ready. Uh, so we think that that's a place where all of our processes notwithstanding, we can just clear a backlog and we can just get thousands of units built in the next few months. And Part of the governor's proposals uh, to the legislature and the budget includes uh, $1.75 billion to basically, it's more complicated than this, but basically to swap out the, the bonds and, and pay for that with, with state funds so that we can unlock um, several thousand, six, seven, eight thousand units of affordable, deeply affordable housing. We're talking about 50%, 30% AMI and below, homeless set-aside units, really deeply, deeply targeted affordable housing that's just sitting there on the shelf waiting to be built, but for lack of funding. And so part of, look, there's, there's fixing the system, which is 434 and the Common App and the Supernova. And then there's addressing the consequences of that system, which is this backlog at SIDLAC. So we're trying to do both at the same time, address the system, but address the consequences of the system. Another uh, bill that aimed to do, um, uh, to, to, to streamline and, and put under the same roof all of these different agencies was AB 1135, um, which, as my colleague Dan Walters wrote about this morning, um, was killed. And a big um, opposition uh, for that came from the labor unions, which play a real tremendous power um, in the legislature. Um, Affordable housing developers have said uh, labor provisions in many of the surviving housing bills can make production more difficult, especially in lower income rural and inland areas where they say there isn't enough union labor and could drive up already sky high costs of production. Um, Adam, I know Beacon has done some research on the effect of prevailing wage standards on housing costs. What do you think about these this new requirement to use a skilled and trained workforce, which we saw in SB7, um, as Jason said, was signed into law and um, appears in, in many other uh, bills in the legislature right now. Is there the labor supply to do that? And what would it do to costs? Um, that's a very good question. Um, and uh, the thing is, is that at any point in time, the number of variables, whether they're market or regulatory, um, can make things look more or less important. Um, obviously, um, the, the wage question is important, uh, but right now nationwide, there is a severe shortage of talented uh, trades um, across a whole number of trades in the construction industry. That we have been um, waving that flag for a long time. You can see very clearly in the data after uh, the Great Recession, a lot of folks retired or moved into other industries. And I think as we begin to look forward coming out of um, this pandemic-induced downturn, our workforce uh, development in that space is going to be really essential. Um, we are talking about, you know, just in California, our challenges around whether it's McKinsey or Beacon or whoever's uh, gap in terms of units. Um, we don't have uh, the workforce union or otherwise um, in these trades to tackle those needs. And that's being replicated across the country. Um, and it, it translates into prices. Um, you know, record home prices are happening across markets big and small right now. I think maybe all of us in California 
are so used to this conversation that um, we're now welcoming colleagues in metros across the U.S. Um, metros that have been off the radar previously for many folks um, looking to buy their first home. Um, I think labor, I, it, labor really is not, uh, labor costs are not the problem. They are a, a part of a constituent group that is needed in the coalition to solve for the bigger challenges. Right now, the things, you know, our forecasts show this, con this problem only getting worse. Um, this, <laughs> this isn't 2008, and that's both good and bad, right? Um, we're over a decade into Dodd-Frank, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, regulating mortgages, mortgage underwriting standards where before that they didn't exist or have been a decade in. Um, you know, uh, we've got a, a millennial population that's coming into home ownership in California. They've been delayed a little bit longer than their, their peers in other states, but um, we, we've got both demand and supply side challenges and, you know, lumber and other uh, constraints are uh, right there along with skilled labor. And so as we begin to think about at the federal level, even infrastructure investment, I think workforce development for those skilled trades is going to be so essential. And it's going to be a part of our economic growth. At the beginning of this conversation, there was, um, you know, this idea that um, we've led the country in economic growth coming out of the last recession. We're poised to do the same. I looked at, you know, the news yesterday about exciting um, opportunities for offshore wind uh, off of San Luis Obispo, Humboldt. Um, the problem is, is all these industries and our innovation here, um, we don't have beds for those jobs. We're doing all the right things in terms of innovation, research and development, and we're not going to have beds. And without really biting off a big part of the challenges in housing, we are risking constrained growth in the future, and we're risking our climate change goals. We're risking a whole portfolio of things that are really important for the future of the economy. So I, I, labor really isn't uh, the cost driver in what we're seeing now. It's a challenge in that there aren't, you can't bid high enough on labor to get the folks you need. So it's kind of a moot point for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Jason, I'd love to get your thoughts on this issue. Um, how is the governor's office weighing this requirement to build with a union workforce against the lofty goals of building anywhere close to millions of housing units when, as Adam pointed out, there is this shortage of labor? Um, and do you think that um, the bills in the current housing package um, will be able to make a difference if, as affordable housing developers argue, the workforce it just isn't there for it? Sure. Uh, I thought Adam's answer was one of the best I've heard on this question. It's nuanced. It's based in, in fact and data. You know, I think uh, uh, so. I don't know that I have a ton more insightful to add to the sort of to the to the deeper premise in terms of uh, the the governor. The governor has long been since his days as a county supervisor supportive of um, prevailing wage of um, the men and women of the construction building trades uh, of skilled and trained uh, labor and apprenticeship programs. We set aggressive apprenticeship goals during the campaign. Um, in fact, the Home Key program, which was one of our homeless programs, um, we uh, worked with the legislature on a trailer bill last year that included a skilled and trained provision. Uh, we were still able to produce through that program 6,000 units of, of housing for homeless at a lower cost in a shorter time frame than ever in the history of California. So I, I would I would sort of associate myself with most of Adam's um, insightful comments and just add that we need to break out of the binaries of if we just do this, then housing crisis gets solved. I think that that's just, I think that that's a trap. Um, and, and I think more, and now you actually are going to kill me, Manuela, but th at the end of the day, whatever laws we pass or don't pass with whatever provisions we have or don't have, have to be implemented fully. Because if you have this or that requirement on wage or this or that a requirement on environmental review, but then local governments or state government is not actually writing regs and not actually holding people accountable. It actually, all of these questions are academic, right? We, we need to be implementing and we need to be executing on the laws that have already been passed, no matter what the labor provisions are or are not, no matter what the materials costs may or may not, we have to do better in taking all of those bills that have been in our past and now making them part of our future. And, and we, we do not as a state and we as an administration do not do a good, have not done a good enough job of that. And our proposal around the accountability work this year is meant to build, to build on that. And now I, I, I actually promise you that's the last time I'll talk about the accountability unit because I know everybody's tired of hearing it, but, but I just had, had to say that as well. 
I think a lot of us support the accountability unit, but you're right. We're at a convergence of rivers is what the problem is. We have a lot of things that increase all at the same time. As you pointed out, we've got labor costs that increase, but we also have a situation when you're trying to do streamlining, you've got um, cost of materials, and then you also have code increases that happen every 18 months to three years, which increases the way, or not just the cost, but then you have to have the, the trades learn or relearn how to construct a house. Um, I got a lecture from my dad a couple of years ago on a code cycle improvement where my dad said he'd been framing a house for 40 years. Now, all of a sudden, he had to figure out how to reframe a house from the bottom to the top. That made him nuts. But in the end, what we're looking at is we need an opportunity to create more stable housing. And when we do these streamlined proposals, we have to do a balancing act. We also have to be careful that we don't front load these streamlining proposals to remove duplicative approval processes from the process and then overload uh, the requirements on the developers. One of the issues that we see that, that fights back and forth is SB6 and uh, AB115, which, which stalled out. Um, there's a conversation between the affordable housing uh, proponents and then there's a conversation with the market rate proponents as to how we get both skilled and trained labor included in the streamlining of commercial conversions, while at the same time including uh, density bonus opportunities within these projects. Um, one of the things that's been requested or that was in Assemblymember Bloom's bill was an, a mandatory 20% set aside. We feel that's not necessarily tenable from the market rate side because, again, we're encouraging mixed income. But we need to focus on, on encouraging more density bonus because that's got um, a, a leveling or, or an, uh, an elevator approach where the more affordable, the smaller the percentage that you have to include in the, in the complex. But it, it goes up based upon the affordability. So at, at very, very low, you've got 5% very low is 10% and moderate income is, is 80% AMI. And that's that can be uh, 10%, but you can also get more incentives to do a deeper set aside. What we're doing is we're sponsoring AB 571 by Assemblymember Mays, which is on the assembly floor currently. We're very excited about the bill because it seeks to remove the affordable housing fee from the affordable housing units within the density bonus application. It simply doesn't make sense in the end to have affordable units pay for other affordable units because they're already being absorbed by the market rate units as it is. But this is one of those hard questions in a balancing act that we're looking at going forward where you think that we'd all be able to kind of come together on a regular basis, but, but it's been more difficult than you would expect in order to figure out sort of how do we balance priorities in creating supply and streamlining. Did, you, uh, did anyone have anything to add there? I mean, I just would add, you know, I mean, I think you talked a little about the tensions between the building trades and the nonprofit affordable housing developers. I think in the end of the day, we all share the same goals is to build housing. And so I think we have to overcome this um, in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, I'm a believer in prevailing wage and skilled and trained. Um, I think it's important because the folks that are building these houses also have to be able to afford to buy a home. Um, and so we want to make sure that they have um, a living wage in order to do so. But I also think there's other costs associated with building that make it difficult, which has been alluded to of, you know, you have, it's very, very time consuming and risky to build housing in California. There are so many sort of choke points and opportunities for the thing to get derailed. You, you have projects that take years and years just to break ground. And so that those are some of the streamlining things that I think are really important that will also help to deal with this sort of cost piece that we're, that we're talking about. And um, to go back to housing prices in California, what what can we expect to see over the next 18 months? Um, are they going to keep rising? Maybe Jennifer can, can kick this one off. I can only give you a guess as to what my economics department tells me. Um, there's people a lot smarter than I am that, that analyze the numbers. Um, being a legislative advocate, I have to rely on, on others for their expertise and data. Um, what they have said essentially is that we may see a softening, but we're not going to see a collapse of the market. We're not going to see a situation where prices are going to markedly fall. Um, as we've, we've talked about, sort of what happened in the, the COVID responses, you know, we're still going to see a situation where we're going to have extraordinarily high housing costs. Hopefully we'll see them adjust down a little bit over the next few months. But I think that for the foreseeable future, we're, we're looking at sort of the market that we're in. We have an extremely constricted supply. We're selling homes um, within two or three days on the market. We don't have enough supply to meet the demand. And as long as that continues to be skewed on the demand side where the supply can't meet it, we're going to continue to see increasing price points on homes, um, which, again, you know, when you look at the state of California and you're looking at the, the minimum amount to qualify to buy um, homes in California, you're looking at you need to make almost $150,000 to buy a median priced home in California. Uh, there's a lot of families in the state that just don't make that with, with two, two incomes or even if you've got... Um, two spouses working and then you've got, you know, your children living with you that that may not be 
possible. Um, we also have a, 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 dis, a disparate impact when you're looking at incomes based upon race. You know, you see a, a, a lower median household hold income for black families versus Asian families um, and, Latin, and Latin families. There's, there's just a, a, a big swing in incomes and the availability of buying homes throughout the state of California. And also, also, as you know, we see a big swing between the inland areas and the coastal areas. Coastal areas obviously cost um, a whole lot more to buy in. But we also know that the most stable housing that we have out there is ownership housing. And that's why the realtors last week um, held a press conference asking that um, the state budget start to focus a little bit more on uh, providing opportunities for ownership housing and, and that we allow 20% of the budget uh, to be allocated uh, for the housing supply section, um, not just to rental development. We need to start encouraging people to develop more owner-occupied housing and deed-restricted housing is an opportunity for people to have stable housing and to finish the ladder that we start, well, we can move them into deed restricted housing and then hopefully into ownership housing, because that's the only way that we're going to build wealth in the state of California for those individuals in underserved communities in order to level the playing field. And can I just also add, you know, I represent Oakland and Berkeley, and there's a saying that realtors use out here is drive till you qualify. Just keep driving out until you qualify out that's past. Real you know, the hills into like, I mean, I have, I have people who live in Stockton and Tracy and commute to Oakland and Berkeley to, to teach here or to be a nurse here or to, you know, they can't live in the community in which they are working because they cannot afford to live here. And we also have to ensure that when we're talking about housing, this impacts our climate change goals. When you have people spending four hours on the road every day to get to and from work, when 41% of our greenhouse gases come out of our exhaust pipes, like this is a holistic issue. You also talk about the educational opportunities for people in certain communities and not in others, right? Depending on the zip code with which you live, which is the house that you can afford. It's connected to our education. I mean, there are so many things that are connected to the housing conversation. Um, that's why grappling with and really understanding how we can get these prices down is going to impact a broad number of things, not just the cost of housing. Yeah, I would follow up and say, no, this it's going to be brutal for a while. Um, this isn't, like I said, it's not 2008. Um, that being said, I, I don't like using the word bubble. Um, it's, I feel like it doesn't illuminate a lot. People kind of project their own vision onto that. But there are a number of cities around the country that we can say do look overpriced compared to things like local apartment rents, uh, wages, uh, the, the pipeline. Um, the the, on the flip side, that we see no evidence, and I attribute it back to Don Frank, the Consumer Protection um, uh, Bureau, that uh, individuals can't afford the homes they're buying. Um, so is it healthy? No, I don't think it's healthy. There's a severe shortage of homes for sale. Um, there's nothing I can see that suggests they're going to be following. Um, millennials were now the largest uh, cohort. Um, we're at the peak years of home ownership. Um, demographically, um, we see uh, continued demand. I think the it is worth flagging just kind of how brutal the data is. We were recently reviewing the most recent uh, series and homes are getting an average. This is across the U.S. of 5.1 offers, um, upwards a lot or upwards of 20 different bids. In April, nearly half of those homes that sold accepted an offer within one week. Um, nearly half of homes are selling above list price and selling times for all uh, housing units was about 17 days. That's, we're, we're breaking records here in terms of like data we have collected over time across a number of these metrics. And at the same time, um, the best forecasters um, in terms of home sales, we came in short. Um, you know, just I think last week we saw that uh, home sales fell from what we were thinking was going to be about 6.02 uh, million to I think we came in at 5.8. Um, and that's a, it's a supply question. Um, additionally, when we look at home starts, so a little bit like it's our proxy for like future relief those came in below expectations uh, as well. So, um, you know, the unhealthiness around supply, we could go through the list and it's not just the construction industry. We have to remember we're coming out of a pandemic that was both like an exogenous shock on the supply side and the demand side of a number of industries. So 
We've got some choke points in lumber, copper, steel. Um, these are going to take time to work out. Um, you know, in California, we add on top of that um, permitting times, land use, uh, and, and that's really, uh, really tough for us. I the final couple things I would say that I think are worth flagging, um, low interest rates are part of this conversation, as well as the, the dollar's been weaker, right? If I, if I remember over the past 12 months, we're down, mm, you know, about 12% versus the Canadian dollar, and I want to say 9 or 10% compared to the euro. So right off the bat, um, suddenly the incentives change uh, for potential foreign buyers, right? Um, if, if there is a discount uh, off, you know, 10% off the top, just because of currency changes. So we've got a perfect storm. And, um, you know, I don't see any evidence that um, we're going to be backing off of the points we're at uh, anytime soon. As you pointed out, and, um, oh, yeah. Sorry, I, I, if I could just add one thought, not to answer the question, but to provoke another question. Look, I, when it comes to the realtors and economists, you guys are the ones who actually know the answer to this question. There's just something interesting. And on a lot of these panels and discussions we have, there's another um, layer to this, which I don't have an I don't have insight into, but I think it's important. Um, is the move to the suburbs? Is the move to remote work something that's permanent or something that was overhyped because of how we all reacted to the pandemic? I, I have a personal opinion on that, which is I'm, it's not relevant. But I, I think that. But the question is, how will that change the patterns of where builders are building? Uh, how cities are reacting? If if some of the suburbs and exurbs are now receiving a flood of um of 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 sort of urban refugees, and those urban refugees are demanding um, walkable coffee shops and a park, you know, within a ten minute walk, and all these sorts of things, how are some of these more rural or exurban communities going to handle that? Will they be able to handle that? And is there a cycle where basically folks fleeing? the coast move inland and say, wait a second, this isn't what I bargained for. I have to drive everywhere. And yeah. so now there's a, so how, I, I, so I don't have good insight into this, but I think it's something that's really worth studying. And I'm sure Adam and his friends are thinking about this, but how, how permanent is this shift away because of COVID forget other questions around, um, you know, basically white flight part two or whatever we're sort of thinking about, but in terms of just a COVID pandemic, um, how, how permanent is that? And, and at what order of magnitude is that really going to manifest? And I, I don't know the answer. I just put it out as a question. So we only have two minutes left. So um, I will get in a quick question um, from, from the audience, um, one that I had myself. Um, so the latest report from the Department of Finance says that while high income households are still coming into the state, low income households are fleeing California, particularly the Bay Area. Um, two parts. One is how will building more market rate units address this? And the other one is around um, eviction protections, right? We're coming against a deadline on June 30th, um, where eviction, uh, eviction moratorium is set to expire. Um, Jason, what is the governor's office thinking around this? We're sure. getting another 2.6 billion. Are uh, tenant protections going to be tied to that? And I'd also love to, to get the realtor's perspective on this. Sure. Um, related to the question of, of rental uh, protection, Manuel, I know this is something that you and I have discussed as well. Um, we're not uh, satisfied with the level of benefit that's been accessed and the benefit that's gone out the door. We need to do more. We need to get more money out the door and into people's pockets. Um, when we set up SB 91 in, I guess it was December or January, uh, there were a bunch of things we didn't know, or there were different realities at the time. Uh, at that point, we had $2.6 billion. At that time, estimates of how much the need was going to be uh, stretched up to $5 billion, and in some cases, $7 billion of need in California. Okay, so now fast forward five months, four months, whatever, um, we now have not $2.6, but $5.2 billion, plus another $2 billion that the governor has put towards utilities. So in that sort of same zone, there's significantly more resources and applications have not been coming in anywhere near the level um, that we had hoped or feared, depending on, I guess, where you sit. Um, part of the reason that applications aren't coming in at the pace that we would have expected is perhaps the application requires too many steps, many of which are required by the federal government. Um, perhaps we need to do a better job of being in language and culturally competent. There are a number of things that we can do to, to improve, and we, we're committed to that. It also may be that demand isn't 
near the $5 billion side of those estimates, and maybe it's lower. The LAO had estimated $400 million of total statewide need. That's probably maybe too low because I think we've already exceeded that, right? So if, if you just have a, if you have a spectrum from 400 million to 5 billion, where are we going to fall? And perhaps even when we correct some of the deficiencies in the program, we're still going to be on the lower side of that demand scale. So more money, lower demand, put those together, we need to be more generous with the benefit. Uh, and, and that's what the governor has proposed is, uh, without getting into too much of this, because I know we're at time, um, the program doesn't pay as presently constructed 100% of arrears or 100% of go forward rent. We'd like to remedy that. We'd like to increase the proportion of rent uh, that this program, the SB91 program pays to 100%, not only going backwards, but going forwards, making sure that tenants can access that uh, benefit directly. And I see Tim's thing that we need to wrap up. So I could keep going and going on this, but it's a long way of saying it's a long way of saying that we need to make improvements to this uh, program. And there are a whole bunch of other issues around rental assistance that we didn't talk about that I'm sure Jennifer and Buffy have thoughts on. Uh, but I will just say we, we are very committed to seeing that benefit amount go up. The question, uh, though, was around not the, the, the benefits, but the moratorium. Um, what, what should we expect come June 30th? Um, I don't know if Ms. Wicks, you want to answer. I, I would I would just return to saying that our goal is to get as much money out the door and into pockets as, as humanly possible. And one of the gating factors of that is right now the program design that limits the benefit to 80% and 25%. We have to address that because a moratorium until the end of time that doesn't provide a sufficient benefit to get people to enroll, we need to get people to enroll. That's That's goal number one among many other goals, but that's goal number one. I mean, I'm happy to add on to this. I know we're over time, but, um, you know, obviously it was very important for us to extend that, you know, we're looking at sort of what's happening in terms of the job market and, and where things are at. Um, David Chu has done some tremendous work leading the effort in this. Um, he takes the lead from the assembly side um, in terms of what the need is. Um, so we'll continue to work closely with him to determine sort of what the need is in terms of making sure that our um, our tenants are protected, but that also that our landlords, you know, receive funds that they need as well. Um, and I think at the end of the day, hopefully we're starting Starting to see more economic recovery coming out of COVID. Um, and although I do think it's going to be a very uneven recovery, I think it's going to disproportionately impact low-income communities, black and brown communities. Um, so making sure people use the benefit, I think, is key, as Jason said, um, and then ensuring that, um, you know, working with David's office on, on potential extensions if we think we need it, but in a way that sort of both guards and protects the landlords, but also um, the, the, the tenants, of course, I think is, is on the table. Thank you all. Um, I know we need to wrap this up. I have a million more questions, but we'll leave those for another day. Um, thanks for, for your time and for sharing all of your insights. Thank you. Very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey, thank you all so much. Uh, and especially thank you, Manuela, for bringing the Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.